Hello, welcome to Better Worlds, a podcast exploring geek culture across mediums. I'm Matthew. I'm Trevor. And I'm Dustin. So, going into follow-up today, um, a little bit abbreviated, but we have a fun fin fact that is going to be shared by, I'm not sure who's going to share it. One of you. Well, not Trevor. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> you have to ask. If, if it were up to Trevor, Finn would be about that favorite character from The Force Awakens. Anyway. Um, Wait, I thought I was totally reading it like, okay, anyway. <laughs> no, so it's confused. not. <laughs> no, Finn is the, the noun of someone from Finland. Why would I want to talk about one of my least favorite Star Wars characters? <laughs> <laughs> I thought I heard that as, okay, good. Just, this so, is all Dustin. going so well. Dustin, tell us about Finland. <laughs> all right. So a trivia about Finland is um, regarding the climate of Finland. They have some record highs here from 2014. And the coldest day in Finland in 2014 was negative 40 degrees. And the warmest day in Finland in 2014 was 32.8 Celsius, 91 Fahrenheit. Which, I don't don't really think of Finland as being a place that could get up to 91 Fahrenheit. So, I thought that was interesting. But it's probably going to keep getting warmer and warmer with uh, climate change and all. So, get used to it, Finland. Yeah, that's one... (laughs) That's one thing where it's like, well, we've all endured much worse heat than that, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if the listener is thinking, well, what was the coldest in Celsius or Fahrenheit, or which one was it? Negative 40 is the same in Celsius and Fahrenheit. I was going to comment on that, but then I thought, oh, no one's interested in that. Oh, everyone's interested in science. I was going to just point, comment like, Dustin, good job on giving it to us in both Celsius and Fahrenheit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Trevor, do you think in Celsius? No. Okay. For some reason, that part never switched over for me. Okay, so liters, what about grams or kilograms? Um, I measure coffee in grams. <laughs> right, but do you think of someone's weight in kilograms or no. an object's weight? No. I tend I tend to think of pounds unless I'm dealing with small amounts of food. So it's just meters and liters. Yeah, I guess so. I think in liters, but that's I'm trying to transition at least to meters and kilograms. Oh, I thought you were saying you think in liters, but you found the system like bad, so you were trying. I'm trying to no, go back to English. And- English volume is just a mess. I. I don't get it at all. It's horrible. <laughs> I always have to ask Siri, how many ounces are in a court or something, you know? Is that even something that you would want to ask? Ounces in a court? I don't know. I I recently came across a package of food which was it was somehow in between I I don't remember if it was solid or liquid, but for some reason it was unclear whether the package was referring to liquid ounces or weight ounces. And so I couldn't figure out how much was in the package and it drove me crazy. That's the worst. So it didn't have like an SI unit with grams or milliliters? I don't think it did. I think it was just ounces. Oh, geez. 
I, I wish I could remember the details, but all I remember is being very frustrated yeah. that I couldn't figure out how much was in this thing. And what, whose bright idea was it to have a volume and a weight unit being the same name? Oh. <laughs> we should just switch. We need to switch over. But then that would displease our British ancestor, whoever that whole imperial system whatnot. We've never really been terribly worried about upsetting them. <laughs> Unless it is related to, I don't know. I have nothing for you. Sorry. My thermodynamics class is from an engineering perspective, and they are listing things in SI and English units, and it drives me crazy because no scientific field that I'm going into is going to be using English units. Rant. (laughs) I was going to say, I don't think the... I mean, like, it's been a while since I had a physics class in high school, but there we never, it was entirely in SI units. Right. Yeah. Because all of the, like, it would make no sense otherwise because you learned every, like, it has to be all connected because of, like, just the accelerations and all that that are, I guess you can do it. Well, yeah. Anyway, let's not get into that. So... I think it was my fifth or sixth grade math textbook that contained an impassioned plea to write your senator and ask them to work towards <laughs> converting the U.S. to proper measurement system. The one I do, and oh, we don't want to get into that. I do think Celsius is a good scientific system. It's not a great everyday usage system in terms of your temperature. I would agree with that because. Fahrenheit has smaller gradations. Would you say gradations or gradient? I don't know. There's there's gradation smaller dimensions right. in the Fahrenheit system, and I can notice like a difference. I I can notice a two degree Fahrenheit difference, which yeah. is a little bit more than, or a little bit less than one degree Celsius. I think. Well, right, and if you're going to, yeah, because roughly. If you want to say that like a lot of the temperatures you encounter are going to be in like a 50 to 90 degree range, that's like a 10 to 30 degree range in Celsius. So it's, you're packing in twice as much change in to, or wait, you're packing in the same amount of change into half the number of units. So it's trying to use more, less to express more. So, okay. I'm not making myself very clear anyway. But I'm not saying you shouldn't use Celsius. It does. Well, then there's like arguments like in some cases, it doesn't even make sense to use Celsius. You want to use Kelvin, so, which is based on Celsius or not. But not for Celsius, everyday but, conversation. What? But not for everyday conversation. Yeah. You don't I'm, want to use Kelvin to figure out if you need a sweater. No. And I was just saying that the Fahrenheit is try, like tried to be based more on human everyday experience, which doesn't make it a good scientific system so celsius does work better for that but then it's you know vice versa they're different things yes okay so sorry never mind this doesn't help my case carry on (laughs) that would be what motivated reasoning an example of motivated reasoning oh yeah (laughs) what i was gonna say i did the a conversion and i just went from one degree Celsius 
to two degrees Celsius, what that difference would be in Fahrenheit, and it's 1.8 degrees. So, well, yeah, because part of the conversion thing is like a nine fifths or five nines, you flip it going one way. So that would be a 1.8 or the other way around. Yeah, I'm using 1.8. So, I guess that makes sense. I don't know. So what that means is that Celsius would be fine to use since I can notice a two degree Fahrenheit difference. It depends on the system and well, I depends on the like air system of places where you are and like the relative humidity and stuff too. Anyway, well, this is such a rabbit trail. <laughs> <laughs> Did we have any other follow-up? Well, I need to talk about, um, I had an unanswered question, which I think is what you were about to say. I want to know what the deal is with quantum teleportation. Yeah. So that and was what had, I was, we had relegated that to follow up in the last episode. Yeah. We said we'd talk about it later. I just suck about with uh multitasking. So I was trying to type and then talk and it didn't work. So I <clears throat> fumbled around through quantum teleportation last week or last time we recorded and concluded with saying let's do it as follow-up next time because i don't really feel confident about it and first of all regarding the use of the word teleportation it seems like science took that from fiction so they used that to express what they use this uh word teleportation that had a meaning in science fiction to uh, express what they were doing with these photons. So that's kind of a reversal of what we were suspecting happened. Right? Because we were thinking that the scientific use of teleportation was not necessarily the same as fictional. Yeah, I was wondering how they differ and how that confuses the reporting on scientific endeavors in that area. Yeah. So from my reading, it seems like if, if, if it's anyone's fault, it's science's fault for using that word, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, so shame on you physicists. Also, uh, from what I can tell, it's what you're teleporting is not an actual photon. You're, you're, teleporting quantum information. So the information that you are sending is relating to, for instance, the spin of the photon. Uh, You teleport that spin state to the third photon. And I guess I should recap. So the way that these experiments are designed, you have an entangled pair of photons, and then one of that entangled pair interacts with the the Captain Kirk (laughs) of the Photon Trio and then uh, one experimenter makes a measurement that entangles those two photons together so that that original entangled photon has oh my goodness my cats are running around on the ceiling it's like horses (laughs) Um, (laughs) so hold on, let's read, let's number these. You got photon one and that's the, the one that you want to teleport. 
And then photons two and three, you those are the transporter pads. So you entangle photons two and three, and then put photon one onto photon two, which is one of the transporter pads. That annihilates photon one, so it doesn't exist anymore. But its uh, spin wave equation is integrated into photon two's wave equation, which then integrates it into photon three's wave equation through entanglement. Um, <clears throat> and so then the researcher that uh, measured something on photons one and two sends that information through classical means, like a phone call or you know email, whatever, to this other researcher who takes that the result of that measurement and then measures photon three in such a way to eliminate photon three's original wave equation and get that information that was photon one. Was that comprehensible at all? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So you're teleporting the quantum, they call it a qubit. So it's a quantum, (laughs) Q-U-B-I-T. So as opposed to a... Like the thing you use to measure arcs? Measure arcs? It's an... If you want to talk about terrible measurements... <laughs> oh, <laughs> a qubit. Okay, no. Yeah, a qubit, but with a Q instead of a C. <laughs> and I was... I I spelled arc as A-R-C. Nope, I'm talking about the thing you put animals in. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was funny. Um... <laughs> So as opposed to like an a computer bit, which is just an off or on, zero, one, we're tra- uh, teleporting quantum bits, which are information relayed through quantum states of particles. Uh, so you're not getting photon one back, it's gone, but you have the information that photon one was carrying, and that is teleported to photon three. Okay, so it is essentially just information? Yes. Okay. Applied to people, this would be a horrifying concept. <laughs> it is. <laughs> well, and... <clears throat> well, I'm sorry about what I did to Captain Kirk, but <laughs> let me tell you about him. <laughs> well, it's like, I'm going to use you as a conduit, we're going to utterly kill this person, and then they're going to be overwritten onto another person. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever watched Sheets? No. Um... Well, leave it at that. No spoilers, but <laughs> leave it at that. Yeah. No spoilers, but I've ruined it for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's like, I don't know what I was thinking last week. Probably I was just tired and overwhelmed with all the science talk, but I was thinking, well, if you have the wave equation, you've got that photon, but Lots of photons, like all of the photons from a a coherent source have the same wave equation. It's just what's the probability that they have this state or this state. And uh, just because you have a photon that has the same state as another photon doesn't make it the same photon. So I was being silly last time. And uh, yeah, you just get the information. Okay. Um, And to be fair regarding the other things that you explained earlier... Once I listened to those while I was more awake, they made a lot more sense. I think we just recorded too late for me to really get it as you explained it. Yeah. But 
listening to it more awake, I think you did just fine. Okay. Thanks. If the listener still has questions, we'd be happy to answer them. As best as an unqualified <laughs> undergrad student can answer. <laughs> Follow-up question. What sort of distances can this quantum teleportation be achieved? Oh, that is a great question. And I don't know it. <laughs> I It's on the... The the farthest that they've done, I think, is on the scale of kilometers. It, it is on the scale of kilometers, but I don't know how many. Not bad. Not bad. Yeah, but this is a really difficult process, and uh, we're nowhere near teleporting macroscopic objects. Let me do a quick DuckDuckGo search. Hmm. In 2014, there was one that was uh, six kilometers. No, wait, 25 kilometers. So, yeah, there, it's probably further than that. I remember seeing one more recently that mentioned the International Space Station, but I don't know if it was being reported accurately, and I don't know exactly what was at play there. That sounds unlikely. Yes. Maybe they were just saying the distance from the surface to the space station. That's like, possible. Was, yeah, but I I don't see how they would be able to send it to the International Space Station. But this is this is kind of where the question originally came from because I was literally like I didn't even click on the article because the comments were just Oh my gosh. So like they're how close now to teleporting astronauts to the space station? It was like, Oh my gosh. Oh, oh boy. So I was yeah. like, I didn't even want to touch that article. So I didn't read it to assess what was actually being said. Right. And you would have to be sending these photons in extremely controlled environments because like even a slight magnetic field fluctuation that one photon travels through would mess up the entanglement. And it they'd no longer be entangled. Okay. So it takes a lot of control. And uh, yeah. So we're not sending photons to the space station. <laughs> okay. Well, shall we move on to what is, I guess, the main topic for this week, discussing how quantum stuff fits into science fiction? Sure. Yes. What do we want to start with? Can I start with my thing? Sure. And then I'm pretty much done. Okay. So uh, in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, there was a scene where the Guardians are escaping from the gold people, and I don't remember what they were called. Matthew? Or Trevor? Um, I'm not remembering what they called them. I don't remember. They are called the something. <laughs> Oh, didn't they have some sort of a uh, like fancy name, like uh, the Sovereign? Yes, that's, like that, that was it. Oh, the the sovereign. sovereign. Okay, because they thought they were better than everyone. Um. So, um, Peter Quill, and this is like what the first twenty minutes of the movie, so I don't feel like I'm spoiling too much. But he is trying to escape them, and he flies through what they call a quantum asteroid field or something like that 
And what they showed in the scene is uh, you would have two asteroids pop out of nothingness and then like recollide with each other and go back into nothingness. And these are just like popping into existence in random places. Um, Do you guys remember that scene? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Earlier you didn't. So I didn't remember them using the phrase quantum asteroids. Oh, it might've just stuck with me because it related to something that I had learned. Uh, I thought it was a clever idea, but it's completely impossible to take place on that scale. Uh, But there is something, a phenomenon called pair production where a photon, if it passes near a nucleus of some kind of atom, out in space, it can, if it interacts just right, it can create an, a uh, particle antiparticle pair that exists for a brief amount of time and then eventually recombine and recombine into the photon. So it's like as it's traveling along, it'll pop into an electron and uh, positron uh, pair or something like that, um, muon or antimuon, whatever. So it travels along, pops into this pair, and then recombines into the photon, pops into the pair, recombines. And it's just a cool aspect of quantum mechanics. Um, However, it's restricted to a a mathematical proportion. And that is that the change in the energy needed to make the the pair times the change in or the uh, amount of time that they exist has to equal a constant uh, Planck's constant, which in this case is actually H bar. So it's one of a couple constants that are called Planck's constant. Um, So H bar is equal to about 1.05 times 10 to the negative 31st, 34th. And I calculated out if these asteroids were each to weigh just one kilogram, the amount of time that they could exist and still keep that proportion true was 5.56 times 10 to the negative 52nd seconds. (laughs) (laughs) So, and that's a one kilogram asteroid, which I don't think we would call an asteroid. Not exactly. No. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, cool idea, but not at all possible. Also, I, I didn't even take into account. I just assumed, okay, we have a photon with that much energy. It's, I don't think that we would be able to get a photon that had that much energy. So, <clears throat> yeah. I did want to point out that the, um, sovereign don't exist in the comics. So that's why I haven't when you're saying like, what's the name of this brace? It's like, I couldn't remember the movie well enough because that's the only place they exist. (laughs) Interesting. I have lots of questions that follow from that, but they are best relegated to another different thing. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So follow up. (laughs) (laughs) They would be in spoiler town. So what do we call it? Spoiler city. That's better than spoiler Berg spoiler. I don't know. Village. The spoiler village. (laughs) 
life is hard in the frontier. Um, anyway, the probably the most, I don't know, I want to say it's the most well-known example in prominent fiction of quantum entanglement or quantum communication in one way or another is the Ansible from the, Trevor, tell me what the name of the series is. Uh, the term Ansible was coined by Ursula K. Le Guin, but that's probably not what you expected me to say. I know it from Ender's Game and the other Ender, the Enderverse, I should say. Um, and they give it a more complicated name, but then say that it's referred to as the Ansible based on a name somebody dug up from an old book. So they kind of give a nod to the fact that they got it from somewhere else, even though they don't actually say where. Anyway, it is a communication device that provides instantaneous communication at any distance or even with somebody who, um, or even between somebody who is at near light speeds with somebody who is not at near light speeds or not. Is it near light? Yeah, it's near light. They don't, I guess so relativistic travel they always say relativistic travel yeah um which is a significant portion of light speed it's not faster than light speed right yes um for those not familiar with it ender the ender verse does not have well never mind i'm not going to say that <laughs> la 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 um <laughs> it's man it's gonna be tough to talk about this without getting into spoilers i guess um Maybe I shouldn't have even said that. <laughs> oh, no. Um, okay, just scratch everything I said about that. Um, they say relativistic speeds. Um, so the catch that they have in this universe is needing to be able to communicate across long distances or communicating with people who are traveling really fast. Um, and the only way to achieve that is instantaneous communication, basically. So the Ansible, as described in the Enderverse, is a device which works based on quantum entanglement. The idea being that you have um, the two devices each contain one of an entangled pair of particles, and then that entanglement is somehow used to transmit the information between them. Um. Have you guys encountered this elsewhere other than Enderverse? Um, in a more limited degree, it's in Mass Effect, specifically Mass Effect 2, but I think they bring it up in 3 and not in the same plot sense. But there it's just literally they have... It's a super secure line because they can only, like through the quantum entangled particles that exist and are like isolated in two locations, they can communicate between those two locations anywhere in the, and it's like non, it's not traceable by any means. It's considered super secure and it's super expensive to do, but they use that just for like one person being able to talk to one other person. Okay. So it's not like a standard of communication. No, because it's, it's very much like a black, not black market, but, uh, your 
it's all but like you have criminal things you don't want authorities to find out with. Uh, maybe not criminal. You have surreptitious activities that you don't want any authority figure to find out. So that's why they do it. So is it more of a mode of encryption rather than a method for communication? It's kind of both in that sense. It's an inherently secure method of communication so that you don't even need encryption? Yeah. Okay. There were just, in terms of the way they were presenting technology, there was no physical way to for anyone else to hear the messages. They also point out very limitedly, like, we can't do anything else with this. Like, it's just for us talking together. Like, you can't secure it. Like, they couldn't teleport anything over that connection or anything like that. The reason that they need it in Ender's Game is that they're sending a fleet to fight back against an alien threat. And, but they're training commanders on or around near Earth. And so they need to be able to transmit orders instantaneously once the fleet arrives for the attack. They need to be able to communicate between the fleet and the command. Um, and then it becomes more of a, later in the series, it becomes more of a standard of communication where different planets have ansibles and there ends up being like a whole network of them. Um, so I guess the question for you, Dustin, is does this have any relation to reality? <laughs> well, I mean, not in the sense, I guess, no, in the sense of we don't have that capability yet, but that is kind of the point of science fiction. It's, it's futuristic and estimating uh, future technological advances. Um I am not sure how, as I've said before, entanglement is a very delicate condition. And so it's easy to destroy the entanglement, which would then destroy your method of communication. So they would have to have some kind of way of maintaining that entanglement for long periods of time. Um, and I don't know how that would happen. But um, as we've said before, the like with uh, I, I suppose theoretically you could transmit um, your quantum information, your qubits, uh, to be uh, as long as you have some kind of way of interpreting that information as a letter or symbol somehow. Um, but also, as said before, the way it works now is you're actually, um, you have to send the results of a measurement to another, to the second post in order to be able to even extract that information. Uh, so it in, it's inherently not instantaneous. Um, it would be instantaneous transmission, but normal speed uh, decryption, I guess. Okay. So essentially they wouldn't know how to actually decrypt the message until they received the normal speed. Again, that's based well. on current technology. So if you had a right. way of um, decrypting the information 
that was also instantaneous or didn't rely on knowing the results of some other thing, then I suppose it could happen. Okay. It's just, we're, we're nowhere near, near that. I think the part that seems the most implausible to me is that when quantum entanglement appears like this in fiction for communication devices, there seems to be the inherent assumption that it is stable. Like there's never anything about worrying about losing the connection. It's just, these are entangled. That's that. Yeah. And we don't have to worry about it. You're always going to be able to get a hold of us because we have these entangled walkie talkies. <laughs> and uh, that's another interesting point. You would have to have an entangled uh, particle for every an- ansible connection that you would ever want to make. Because if you're entangled with, uh, if you have an entangled connection between, mm, let's say we wanted to do this podcast over an entangled connection, we would each have to have two entangled uh, particles just to be able to communicate to everyone. Not necessarily. Um, Because if it's more like the internet, you don't have to have each user connected to another. So for instance, if I was connected to you and then you were connected to Matthew, Matthew and I would still be connected through you. But if you wanted to say something to Matthew, that would require me inputting that data into my photon or particle entanglement with Matthew. Well, not if the, I mean, the computers can handle that though. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's the (laughs) idea. The The computers are acting as a relay. Okay. And so you just have this entangled particle isolated inside the computer somehow. I guess so. Okay. I mean, there has to be some kind of device translating whatever's happening anyway. I see. Cause you can't, um, it's not like you're just looking at the particle. Yeah. Any more than you're directly reading electrical current when you get an email. Yeah. The device still has to interpret the information for you. Let's imagine that, uh, we were, Hmm. If it was a larger network, then I don't know. I'm just imagining a scenario where the computers would have to destroy another message that's trying to be sent in order to send the current message that they're trying to. Because if we're relying on just a single connection between point A and point B, then if point C is trying to communicate to point D, but they have to go through point B, it, I don't know. There is some stuff in the books about the political power that comes through controlling the communication network because, um, Oh, I mean, giving priority to certain transmissions. Yeah. I mean, there's, I remember there's a whole prologue for a chapter that talks about how the Starways Congress has achieved all this power because they control the networks. And I think all of the books, bandwidth becomes a serious issue at some point. Um, like there, I I'm thinking of one book in particular where there's a people on a ship and they're having an argument about, um, 
what information is worth being sent, partly because they're moving at relativistic speeds and um, the amount that they transfer in half an hour is, you know, like five years for the people receiving it. So it's like, well, what do they get this thing in the next five years or do they get the other thing? And so, um, although that, it becomes more of a problem when one of the people is moving at relativistic speeds, but even when you're not, um, there's still bandwidth issues. Um, it's still functioning as a network. So you don't have to have a connection from each point to each point. There's, there's relays going on, but I, I know at least some of the planets would only have one connection going to or from them. I think, I, th- I think there are some planets that only have one Ansible essentially connecting them, which is kind of like how, I mean, even on earth, if you had a country that relied on one big cable to connect it to the internet, the computers on that Island are still going to be connected in a bunch of different ways. And there could be many different ways to get from point A to point B along that network but then you have just the one connection out. I see. Actually that I've heard this is also a political problem for a lot of South American countries because, um, a lot of the connections to South American countries go through the U S to get to the rest of the world. And so that essentially means that that was one of the things that was kind of a, a matter of discussion after, uh, Edward Snowden, leaked all that stuff about NSA capabilities. And that was part of why some of the South American countries were more helpful to him because um, they knew that that meant that everything coming in and out of those countries could be surveilled because it would have to go through the U S am I going on a tangent? I mean, it is a tangent, but it's related and it's interesting. So anyway, there doesn't have to be a connection from every point to every point, but um there at some level there are always bandwidth issues along whatever connections are available and whoever controls those connections does get a lot of power what were we talking about well we were talking about the ansible network <laughs> right i imagine probably the theme with all of these is that it's somehow related to actual science but the degree to which it's related varies and none of it is actually fully scientific. That's going to be my prediction. <laughs> yeah. And the, the Ansible doesn't bother me too much. That That's one that seems plausible, I guess. Yeah. Doesn't seem too crazy. If, if all of those conditions were met, then sure. It is imaginable that it could happen someday in some way, even if not exactly as described. Yeah through a method that, well, I mean, if we knew about it and understood it right now, then we would be doing it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's what annoys me. Never mind. I'm not going to talk about star Wars. (laughs) That would be a first for better worlds. I hate it when people say, Oh, lightsabers don't exist. (laughs) Okay, cool. You're smart. You know that lightsabers don't exist right here, right now. Good job. That means absolutely nothing. Yeah, neither do starships. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, yeah, I guess so. What? 
I guess it depends on your definition of starship. I'm I'm thinking Star Trek specifically. I was thinking of our conversation last time about Neil deGrasse Tyson making fun of Star Wars, <laughs> but accepting Star Trek. Okay. I'm remembering when we played, specifically Trevor and I, I don't know if Dustin was there, played Imagine If in college with someone, and we decided just humorously to include on as a person around the board t- a T-Rex, and one of the other people we were playing with was like, do we have to include that? Let's include something that exists. <laughs> and it was like they don't exist now but they like i don't know it was some people don't appreciate imagination at the end <laughs> um okay so i most of my quantum stuff relates to the inverse i like the inverse um i'm also not sure how far i can go into it without going into spoilers well, you could just clean that up in, in production and with beeps and stuff. Yeah, just a ton of beeps. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a certain level at which it gets spoilery enough that it might not be worth discussing at all. Um, Dustin, have you read four of the Inderverse books? Yes. So you've read through Children of the Mind? I've read the... In- Original Ender Quartet. Okay. Um, okay, so here's where it gets weirder with the Ender Quantum stuff. In the Enderverse, the most basic building block of everything that is is called a phylote. Do you remember this in the books, Dustin? Yes, I do. Okay. And Matthew, you've only read Ender's Game, right? Yes. Okay, so I don't think it really gets discussed much, if at all, in there. Um, Yeah, so phylotes are the most basic building block of everything. I don't think they're directly analogous to any real scientific concept, but phylotic twining is. So in the Enderverse, quantum entanglement is essentially phylotic twining. So the Ansible... Or would you rather say phylotic twining is entanglement? Um, whichever way. Okay. Uh, so basically we've been saying for the past few minutes here that the Ansible works by using quantum entanglement. What it actually works with in the inverse is phylotic twining. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So there are phylotes that are entwined and linked at any distance. Um, now, where this gets a little stranger is that everything is connected with phylotic twining to some degree. For instance, when people develop relationships, then their phylotes are entwined to some degree. Um, and the people living on a planet might be um, entwined with that planet's phylotes. So I don't know if there's really even any question there because this is where the Enderverse gets into a little stranger metaphysical kind of stuff. So I don't know if there's really any need to even relate that to quantum physics. Yeah. Cause it's when just, I, 
And I, I kind of appreciate the fact that when he was writing this, he chose to actually use different words instead of trying to just say everything is quantum. Everything is quantum. <laughs> everything is cool when you're part of a pair. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is quantum. I can't think of some pairs, not a hard word to rhyme with, but I can't think of anything that's appropriate. <laughs> what were you about to say, Dustin? Um, when I read through the Ender Quartet, um, I didn't make the connection that the phylotes and the phylotic twining, twining were supposed to be quantum entanglement. And so I, just, I don't think they are when it goes, when it begins talking about relationships and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I do believe it says that the Ansible works through phylotic twining. Right. It does. Do you remember what the long name for the Ansible network was? Um, do you mean the long name for the Ansible network or the long name for the Ansible itself? Uh, the latter. Give me just a second. I looked this up earlier. Oh, cause I know it right now. It's, Phylotic Parallax Instantaneous Communicator. That's right. And so, like, from the very beginning, they are saying this is through phylotic twining. Okay, so I guess it does originate even in the first book. Right. So, when I was reading through that, I, I just kind of accepted it wholesale because it seemed like it was being presented as a physical property or part of reality that hadn't been, hasn't been discovered yet and was only discovered through interactions with another uh, species. So my impression was that it was related to quantum physics, but like you said, it was essentially knowledge gained from the formics. It was not really, which the Formics would be the the race that attacked for anybody who hasn't read Ender's Game. This is kind of the the main boogeyman of the first book. Are they addressed as Formics anywhere in the Ender Quartet? Because I think I've I only remember the, seeing them called buggers. That's a good question. That might not be used until Ender's Shadow. So yeah, Formic is like the kind of official term for the buggers. Buggers more colloquial, formic is more formal. The name sounds familiar to me or makes sense to me, and I only read the first book. Okay. It's possible they even put it in in later revisions or something. Makes sense. Um, I think it might get mentioned like once, but I'm not sure. But yeah, I mean, that just kind of refers to their ant-like nature. Anyway, um, I think the knowledge of phylotes was gained from the formix and bears some relation to human quantum mechanics. But I don't think that that necessarily makes it a different thing that their understanding is different. Yeah. Or that they had greater understanding or understanding that was useful in different ways. Um, so I don't know, Dustin, do you think it's worth talking about the, I, I, you, uh, at all? Uh, probably not. Okay. Do you think that souls are made out of quantum mechanics? <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> I think we had, was there anything else left to say about the Ansible in general? 
I had the Barsoom thing. That's the only thing. I don't have a whole lot of other quantum things to talk about, but I've got the Barsoom thing. So I appreciate that Orson Scott Card used a different word rather than simply saying that everything was quantum. Um, there is a page on TV tropes named quantum mechanics can do anything. And it basically refers to the idea that um, quantum physics, even real quantum physics terms often get thrown into fiction as a way of explaining things. Um, so it's almost a sort of techno babble. Most of the time that it appears in fiction. Um, but it's almost worse because it's actual terms. So does that bug you Dustin when you see it being thrown around just for like no reason? Um, if I were in the mood to tear something apart, then sure it would bother me and it would just be more fodder for ridiculing whatever show or movie I was watching. But if I'm there because I want to watch the movie and I want to enjoy it, then I just kind of ignore it. Okay. For instance, like Star Trek has a lot of, uh, physics talk that probably isn't, uh, realistic or grounded in anything. Uh, but I just, I don't know. It's, it's the techno babble. I just, I hear it. Something, there's some kind of science reason why, okay, whatever, let's continue on. (laughs) So I don't know. Some, sometimes it bothers me whenever, for instance, I've heard Neil deGrasse Tyson talk about different movies and tear them apart because they don't fit with the science. And whenever I go to watch a movie, unless it's just really egregious stuff and it's, you know, probably a movie that I don't enjoy already. I just don't really let the science, um, the scientific errors bother me. As a brief aside to that, that does remind me of a time when I read just as a news article that there was being made a fourth Sharknado, fifth Sharknado, something like that. Um, And there was a comment on the article that I found amusing where someone said, I know we like to have fun with this and that the fictional portrayals are fun, but Sharknados are a real problem we have to worry about. And I just couldn't even bring myself to read anything else that was being said. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Jeez! oh that i totally lost my train of thought when you said that too i oh my gosh <laughs> my bad <laughs> i think dustin on relating to what you were saying about sometimes you want to think about the science sometimes you don't my pet peeve in that area is when people complain about sound and space because sometimes it is nice to have no sound in space in specific situations. Like sometimes it actually adds some gravity to a scene or um, like if it's something portraying actual astronauts, like even roughly from this time period, um, it can really help. But when it's like 
spaceships are fighting and people are complaining that the missiles are making explosion sounds. I'm just like, I don't know. That bugs me because it's there to add atmosphere. Right. It's the suspension of reality. But then even on top of that, what do you think it's going to sound like if you're in a ship and the ship gets hit with a missile or something? Is there going to be no sound in the spaceship? Come on. Like that's still going to do stuff, you know? Right. That also makes me think of how like they described a lot of space battles in mass effect, like in the codex, they basically said that because everything overheats, like they spend a lot of time explaining heat sinks and how weapons work and engines work and, being able to actually see each other in space and they were like most space battles are very brief and everything overheats and everyone just kind of moves like it's not that interesting (laughs) yeah like the the issue of sound like whether you're gonna hear your own ship getting hit with a missile that's not the biggest question of like whether this space dogfight is plausible or not you would hear your ship being hit by missile exactly that's what i'm saying (laughs) like if your ship is getting hit you're gonna hear it Right. Because the sound is not moving through space, it's moving through the ship. Right. So if you show a collision or a weapon impact from the outside and then basically play a sound like what it would be on the inside of the ship, that's just providing appropriate atmosphere to make it feel a little more like you're there, I guess. But then even if that's even if it's like the sound of a passing ship or something like the scream of TIE fighter, that's not going to be there. Cause that would be sounds traveling through space. But as Matthew mentioned is illuminated by a lot of the stuff in mass effect. There's so many other things wrong with those space fights <laughs> that sound is not really the biggest issue. I always assume the TIE fighter engines, they just played on the inside of the TIE fighter to drive, <laughs> to drive the pilots mad. So they, that's why they, piloted so poorly most of the time in in some of the star wars novels there actually is an explanation that the ships contain the ships have technology that basically gives you auditory feedback to provide awareness of what's going on around you so it's not really sound moving through space it's these sensors reading what's happening outside the ship then playing audible feedback to help you understand what's going on around you which yes it's just in the books whatever (laughs) but it seems perfectly plausible to me it seems totally plausible to me i think it's a cool idea those would have to be some really adept sensors but the high-pitched scream lets you know that everything's all right (laughs) (laughs) oh that that's the all's well bell (laughs) (laughs) okay so (laughs) The direction I was going. Imagine like a bell running, ringing the entire time, and then it's like someone just hates it, and then it stops, and they're like, "Ah, oh, finally!" Oh, wait, <laughs> because the it's not all well anymore. Okay, anyway, go on. That was. I mean, that's basically how it works. You have pet birds. You have to like play sounds so they know everything's okay. Because if the jungle goes quiet, then bad things happen. Anyway, spaceships aren't jungles. Most of them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wait, do you have an example of a spaceship that's a jungle? Um, the jungle book in space. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't there some jungles in ships in Halo? Am I imagining this? Are you referring to a Halo? No, not on a Halo. I mean, okay. there's totally like forests and stuff on Halos. Right. 
But I think in a ship, there's some point where you like go down into this area that has this whole. Oh, that has like arboretums and stuff. I don't think it's yeah. quite as much like a whole jungle. Although now I kind of want someone to write like they just made like a giant dome with some that's self-contained and self-sustaining put jungle animals and just shot it into space to see what happens. So if I go to a botanical garden, does that count as being in a jungle? Trevor? Is it on a spaceship? No. (laughs) But you are you are arguing that it's a jungle that's a spaceship or I don't. What was the original statement? <laughs> <laughs> I said something about jungles. Spaceships aren't usually jungles. Okay, yeah. So this this spaceship is a jungle. <laughs> Does not seem to equate to. It has an arboretum. <laughs> um. Well, it has birds that can be scared within the noise stops. <laughs> I don't know if there are birds. I don't even know what we're discussing anymore. <laughs> I think there's parts in Halo when you're on Halos and there are jungle-y type, like swampy or jungle-y environments. I'm pretty but, sure I was thinking of like when you go into essentially an arboretum on a ship. Yeah. Not in a I think there's some of that in the beginning of 2, like when you're on the... When you're on Earth? Whatever. No, the... <laughs> <laughs> when you're on the space station, I can't remember the name of, like, they're all named like the Athens or the Sparta or the Rubicon or stuff like that. Cool. Um, With that in mind, did you want to talk about the Barsoom series? Okay, yes. The direction I was going when I was asking you about them just throwing out the word quantum to explain things, I wanted to mention the Barsoom series, which um, people may be more familiar with the name A Princess of Mars, which is the first book in the series. They may be more familiar yet with the name John Carter or John Carter of Mars. Yes, it's a Disney movie. I have not actually seen it. Um, it's also a book from 1913. I think it was published as a serial in 1913 and as a novel in 1917. Um, and then there was a whole series of books. Edgar Rice Burroughs, same guy who wrote Tarzan. This was very early science fiction. And, um, it's about a guy who travels to Mars, which, um, the Martians called Barsoom. And in this book, much of the technology is described basically by just throwing out the word radium. Like the element radium? Yes. When I was reading this book, it reminded me of the way people nowadays use quantum concepts in their books. Because, um, what's that field that radium is? A radioactive material? Radioactive. Like um, nuclear physics? Nuclear physics. Um, is that what we're talking about? I don't know. I think it was Chemistry? a fairly new. <laughs> <laughs> that, that field, whichever field I'm talking about, was fairly new at the time, I guess. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I oh, see. I'm I so nervous would... about saying what I want to say because I'm afraid I'm going to say something wrong. <laughs> that I sound like I'm just making it up and waiting for you guys to say yes. Yeah. Radium was only discovered in 1898. Okay. Okay. So basically he just throws out the word radium anytime he wants. Like, see, so the Martians have these incredible radium guns and like radium powered vehicles and all this stuff. And the whole time I'm reading this, I'm thinking one, you're just throwing that word out the way people throw out quantum these days Two, all of these people are going to die horrible deaths because they're using radium. Although I guess the Martians could be immune to it. 
To be fair, though, I think stuff like when radium was discovered, it was not known that it was. It led to radiation poisoning, and they did put it on, like, watches and clocks and stuff. Yeah. And it then later they figured out, oh, crap, this poisoned the crap out of people, and they died. Right. But even when they put it on clocks, that didn't mean that it had some, like, incredible super alien futuristic powers or abilities. Oh no. It just, but in the book, like they're just like, Oh, well this gun uses radium bullets. So it's like this, like crazy fancy. It was almost like the idea of a laser gun, but, um, that they said that when the radium bullets were fired, they would like explode or something. I don't know. It was, he was obviously just throwing stuff out there because there were these relatively new scientific concepts. So I just think it's interesting that the almost not random, random is not the right word, but um, what's the word I'm looking for? Slipshod, careless. I don't know. Just using relatively new scientific terms, somewhat willy nilly in fiction to make them sound more futuristic. It's, early Marvel is very, very guilty of that. Like Stan Lee. It's at least a hundred years old because uh, (laughs) Edgar Rice Bros did it. So I guess the authors who are doing it these days with quantum stuff are in good company. Stan Lee, I don't think knows what a transistor is, but he talked about them constantly and like just basically used transistors to say like through the power of transistors, I can do this. And it's like, I don't think you even know what a transistor (laughs) is. (laughs) What kind of stuff would he use that for? Everything related to Iron Man, he somehow had like a, they installed shortly after Captain America was found, like things on his shield that allowed him to like control it through the air that were transistors. And (laughs) I think they attached transistors to Thor's hammer at one point. And there was just transistors on everything. And like anytime there was a new gadget, the early Avengers used to like, we've got this transistor powered viewing, like they just it was always just name dropping transistors interesting i suppose if it was if the name dropping was that prevalent it would become wearisome and annoying but i don't know if i'm watching like a i think for some reason i was thinking of television or movies uh those are not typically long enough to throw in quantum or radium or transistor so much that you just get tired of it and find it annoying Hmm. generally. I don't know. Yeah. So anyway, that to say, I think Trevor's observed phenomenon is very accurate and that's just the age we're in now that quantum things occupy that niche. Quantum is the new radium, which was the new transit. No, no radium was, Radium was first. Transistor. Yeah. Hold on. <laughs> Scratch Quantum's that. Quantum's the new transistor, which was the new radium. Yes, that was what I was going to say. You stole his thunder. You stole it. Now Dustin, say it. <laughs> Quantum is the new transistor, which was the new radium. Yes. So, um, I want to say just a few quick words about A Princess of Mars. It is very old. It was made into a movie which has been criticized greatly, but I think it is pretty interesting if you read it, not thinking this is going to be a great novel, but kind of as a historical endeavor, 
because it was so influential. Just, I mean, it came early enough that it influenced a whole lot of other things. And having not seen the movie, my hunch is that part of the reason people thought it was so lame is that its source material was so influential that making a movie a hundred years later, it seemed derivative of a lot of the other things that had come in between. So like people say, Oh, another movie about blue people. We just watched avatar, but John Carter in, I mean, in a princess of Mars, there were blue people long before avatar or James Cameron existed. So anyway, it's, it doesn't seem like a terribly interesting story these days, probably, and not terribly original until you realize what year it was written and all the stuff that it seems derivative of was actually inspired by it. It makes an appearance in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in the second volume of that. How so? It's in it. John Carner's one of the characters. Oh, in like the comic books? Yeah, the graphic novels. Okay graphic novels sorry no that's fine i've only seen the movie of that i haven't seen the movie well wait a minute wait a minute league of extraordinary gentlemen second volume of the graphic novel yes it's not as good as yes does it take place on mars yes oh it does yes okay Wait, i never read that one no the whole i mean the whole story doesn't but a section of it does I was going to complain that if it took place on earth, he would just be a normal human. He only has superpowers on Mars. Do you guys want me to kind of like, ha- it? Uh, you don't have to explain. No, okay. Cause it would be spoiler to. if you guys wanted to read it. But like I said, it's not as good as the first one. I did not like, I don't, I just don't think I like Alan Moore. Anyway, let's go on. So it, yeah. it's amusing to me on that note that Superman is from another planet and only has powers on earth. And John Carter is from Earth and only had powers when he went to Mars because of like the different gravity and everything. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, that was a large part of the explanation was the lighter gravity hmm. made him able to jump further. And he just seemed stronger because he was used to being under greater gravity. Yeah. So just a normal human seemed like a superhero there. But if a Jovian um, showed up here, then it'd be the same deal. Um, sure. <laughs> I guess so. What um, do you mean? Well, would they be able to exist in our atmosphere? Well, probably not. No. <laughs> I mean, they'd be used to like swimming in gas. I mean, is, is a human built to exist in a light atmosphere like on Mars? That's no. That's beside the point. <laughs> We're barely built to survive here. God. <laughs> <laughs> um, Anyway, I, yeah, so John Carter going to Mars seems almost like a proto. What year was Superman inflicted? 37, 36, somewhere okay. in there. Yeah, so again, John Carter came way before him. I wonder how much of that was inspired by John Carter. Now I'm curious. I have no idea. Just curious. All of it. Um, All of it. Oh, and I have one other thought. Last week, when I brought up the quantum teleportation thing, I was complaining about people not understanding, or rather, having different understandings of terms that scientists used. And so, like, scientists use one term, people hear it, and think they mean another thing. 
and then totally misread what the scientists were saying. Thus muddying many journalistic attempts to be intermediaries between scientists and regular people. Not that scientists aren't regular people. (laughs) Thank you for Um, clarifying that. Anyway, I was asking about quantum teleportation, but I was trying to come up with a more obvious example. And I came across the example of manipulating data. Are we talking about data, the Android or data being information information okay so the example here is you know scientists if they talk about manipulating data they're simply talking about using the data or looking at it in different ways right i don't know i probably just have this our cultural usage of manipulating data Okay, well, I think, maybe I'm wrong here, but I think that (laughs) I'm not a scientist, but let me tell you about. (laughs) (laughs) But I know one. (laughs) My understanding here is that in scientific terms, manipulating data would refer to using that data or interpreting it in different ways. But a lot of people would hear that as... um, intentionally changing or corrupting the data to make it say what you wanted it to say. Hmm. And I'm pretty sure I heard this come up in the context of climate change. Yeah. Where people saw climate scientists mentioning manipulating data and they said, ha, I knew they were making it up because they're manipulating the data to say what they want. I'm like, no, they, they are looking at the data and interpreting it. Yeah. So, I have two thoughts. One, you should probably ask your brother-in-law. Probably. He would he'd be more well-versed in that. And two, the scientists have to know that, I mean, being from the culture where the phrase manipulating data means what it does, they would have to know that saying that would trigger that type of response. So, I don't know. Yeah, um, I guess it, it makes sense to say the onus is more on the scientists to know how to communicate it. Yeah, like I, I just think it was a poor choice to say that. I don't know if they were talking, I don't know if they were intentionally trying to communicate to non-scientists oh. or if it was almost like a case of being overheard. Okay, well, if that were the case, then... Or like not not even overheard, but like somebody was reading materials intended for scientists, right? Like they were reading a report that had been written for scientists. Well, because you know those scientists are and said, "Oh, like it says right in the report that they're corrupting the data." Like, yeah, no, no it's a giant conspiracy, man. Yeah. Um, I don't think I have any other quantum stuff to talk about. In fiction, I think there's some stuff in the book Anathem, which is really good, but it's been too long since I've read it. So I don't know. I don't actually have anything to discuss about it. I feel like I've been talking for a while straight. Yeah, that's fine. We like hearing your voice. So we are all out of quantum news, is what I'm hearing. So we should probably wrap it up? Sure. (laughs) Can we have a a quanta of sponsorship. 
Should I talk about production stuff or save that for after the wrap up? Talk about it now. Okay. I'm trying to remember what I needed to tell people about. Well, you wanted to explain why there were delays on the last episode. That's right. The last episode we had three weeks in between instead of two weeks. Normally it's every two weeks, but it took three. Um, basically one of the most annoying tasks in producing the show is getting rid of noise that's on the tracks. So a really good plugin for getting rid of noise, just like hums and stuff was on sale really cheap near the beginning of when I was starting to edit this and I got excited and I bought it. And then I realized I needed to learn how to use it. So that was the first problem. Um, second problem. Um, I think the biggest problem for amateur audio production is getting stuff loud enough because you can produce a song or a podcast and it sounds great. And then you send it to somebody and they listen to it and they crank their phone or whatever they're listening on all the way up and they can barely hear it. And if you search online and try to find out how to solve this, you get a lot of people saying, you don't need to worry about that. The mastering engineer will take care of that. (laughs) And so who's our mastering uh, engineer? I am also the mastering engineer. (laughs) On top of that, I want to make this as efficient as possible when I'm producing it. And so I try to make it loud enough to begin with rather than mastering the track. Cause if you're, if you have a whole bunch of songs and you need to get them into a cohesive album, you have to master them after you mix the tracks. If you're doing just one file, like for a podcast, it is very tempting to just make it sound right straight out of the, um, out of the software they're using to mix it without going through a second mastering step. Uh, so anyway, it's tough to make the track loud enough so that you can all hear it on your stereos or earbuds or phones laying on a counter or whatever you're doing. What I've done in the past is I have thrown each of the tracks. Um, we have a track for each person. I throw each one onto a little single purpose app called levelator and levelator automatically makes the tracks loud enough. And then I put them into my mixing software and produce it and accept whatever level comes out of there. For some reason, this past episode for episode 18, when I did that, it added a bunch of clicks and pops and stuff and made the tracks unusable. So that meant I had to skip that step and then try to figure out how to make it loud enough after or during mixing. And as I said, just a second ago, I searched online. I tried to find answers. People don't like giving answers for this because let the mastering engineer deal with it is the standard thing. And then every once in a while, you'll also get somebody who goes on some tirade about the loudness wars, about how there's not enough dynamic variance in music anymore. Um, The idea being CDs used to get really loud during some big parts and then they would get really quiet and have softer parts, but now everything's kind of smashed together. So it's closer to being one volume without as much 
difference between loud and soft. And anyway, that doesn't matter at all to me. We're doing a podcast. I don't want a whole lot of dynamic variance. I want you to be able to hear what we're saying the whole time. So I actually want the volume pretty compressed into just one volume where you can hear us the whole time. Um, Levelator did that automatically. And anyway, um, it added a lot of time that I had to learn how to use our noise removal software. It added a lot of time that I had to figure out how to make things loud enough. One thing I discovered along the way is that a lot of the noise problems we had were actually the result of that leveling software that I was using because it didn't know what was good and what was bad and it would make everything really loud. So (laughs) if there was like a soft little hiss, it would bring that full volume right along with your voice. Or even if it was just silence after a voice, it would bring that up. Um, so now that I'm not using Levelator, there's actually a lot more, or sorry, a lot less noise to remove. Um, and I did finally figure out how to bring the volume up. From what I've heard, it was loud enough on the last episode, on episode 18. So I think that worked out. It just took me a little while to figure it out because I tried rushing it at first and then kind of took a step back and decided to figure out how to actually do it. Then found out that the internet wasn't going to help me. Then I had to really figure it out on my own. And anyway, long story short, I had to learn a lot of things on this last episode and hopefully those things will be able to go into a tighter production schedule in the future so that we're not leaving people waiting for episodes. Cause I, I really hate doing that, but at the same time, This is kind of a fun side project that we do. So sometimes it's not going to be on the same day, I guess. (laughs) And what that illustrates for everyone is that basically Matthew and I show up, we talk, and then Trevor does all the work. (laughs) And we appreciate Trevor's diligence. This is why I get all the money we make. Yes. Yes, 100% of our profits go to Trevor. We have actually made, I think, about 56 cents on affiliate links. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I was unaware of this. I don't think I can actually request a payout until it's 20 bucks. So, <laughs> <laughs> But you earned that 56 cents. Still waiting for that payout. <laughs> it's a long wait on a train don't come. <laughs> but we anyway, appreciate it. do you Trevor. guys have... I said, said, we appreciate Trevor. I was reiterating and reinforcing the thing that was said. Okay. Do you have any questions about anything? No. Okay. Well, in case you didn't catch it in my tirade there, one of the conclusions is that your mics are not responsible for creating noise like I thought. Yay. It was the leveling software that I was using. But I think the production should go faster now if I basically keep what I did for the last episode as a template and use that to throw our tracks into. Yeah. I think I'll be able to turn them out a little bit faster. Nice. Truthfully, the noise removal was the part I dreaded most. And sometimes I would just not get started as early as I should because I didn't want to have to do that part. But the new software makes it a lot easier and not using Levelator makes it a lot easier. (laughs) So anyway, that's enough on that. It's not a particularly exciting topic. That is uh, just how we do it, I guess. It's 
it's fine by fine. Okay. <laughs> shall we close out? We shall. We shall. You can find us online at betterworlds.net or on Twitter at betterworldsnet. We also have a Facebook page and Instagram, but we don't use them, so don't bother going there. <laughs> I almost sent a video to the Facebook page, but then I couldn't figure out how because I don't <laughs> Facebook, and so I just stopped. I'm just uh, the, I hate using Facebook, and I can share the episodes to the Facebook page and see that they get like five views each time because that's just not where people look for our show. Um. We have more people following us on Twitter and subscribed to the feed. So I'm kind of just not worrying about Facebook at this point. Maybe I should delete it if I'm not using it. I don't know. Do people delete their accounts? <laughs> I delete it. I'm talking about the page. It's a page. Oh, wait. It's a page. Not an account. Uh, anyway. I hate Facebook. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Like, I don't even get the difference. <laughs> so that shows how much I like Facebook, too. Between the, the page and the account, like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Whatevs. <laughs> um, we also have a Slack group, which we would love to have you join. We like talking with people there, and we need more of you on there. Please email us at feedback at betterworlds.net and ask about the Slack group and we will send you an invite and then you can join us on there and have some lovely chit chat about superheroes and quantum mechanics and John Carter. Um, dinosaurs, dinosaurs, destiny, probably star Wars, probably star Wars. Maybe, you know, if we feel like it, I don't know anyone that would want to talk about that. Yeah. I don't know. Sometimes we talk about board games. Sometimes uh, listener Curtis sends us lovely articles about science news. One way that you can help us out is to rate the show on iTunes or give it a star in Overcast or whatever else you're using to listen. Um, ratings, reviews help people find us. Also tell your friends. I imagine that might help as well. Um, anything else I didn't cover? This episode is brought to you by Audible, an app for listening to podcasts. No. (laughs) Actually, it does have podcasts, I think. Anyway, this episode is brought to you by Audible, an app and a store for audiobooks. I like listening to audiobooks because it is something I can do while I'm doing other stuff. Driving, washing dishes, etc. Um... If you like reading but don't have time to sit down and read as many books as you want, you should try audiobooks, and you should do that by going to betterworlds.net. No. Uh, Best ad read ever. You (laughs) You should check it out at audibletrial. Is it .com? Yes. I don't even remember what I was saying at this point. Slash better worlds. If you like reading, but you don't have enough time to read all the books that you want to read, you should try out audiobooks, and you should do that by going to audibletrial.com slash better worlds and sign up for a trial which will grant you one free audiobook of your choice. Any audiobook. 
and there are literally 15,000 dozen audiobooks for you to choose from. I just finished listening to Golden Hand, which is the sequel to the sequel to the sequel of Sabriel, and it was delightful. They probably also have Sabriel if you haven't listened to all of those yet. I see on audibletrial.com that they have an audiobook of Phasma, uh, a Star Wars novel. Ooh, I forgot that had just come out. Narrated by January Lavoie. I don't know who that is. I'm not familiar with. I was wondering if it was the actress that plays Phasma. No. Um, the actress who plays Phasma has some name that people would recognize because she's in some TV show that people like. If only there was some kind of database on the internet that told us about movies and things. Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> and with that, Star- Sterling observation upon the information retrieval capacities of the internet. Once again, you can retrieve your free audiobook at audibletrial.com slash betterworlds. Go then. Thank you for listening. Go then. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot when we say it. (laughs) It's fun to have it backwards once. Okay, are we done? Gwendolyn Christie. Yeah, Gwendolyn Christie, that's right. I had something I wanted to say. Well, I don't know. I don't think I made it clear last week that I didn't do this research by myself. I I know I used the pronoun we, but it was obviously not just one person doing the research. So part of that was I I hadn't gotten permission from anyone to use their names, uh, but I did have a research partner. His name was Draven and... Uh, we <laughs> we've had a conversation about how his name sounds like a, an evil villain. I don't remember. It was really funny, but uh, so yeah, Draven. Very specifically, his name sounds like a villain who used to be a trusted partner. Is he returning to Eastern Europe? To- <laughs> yes. <laughs> So, um, we worked together this summer under a an advisor. So, shout out to Draven. I don't like laughing at people's names. What? I don't like laughing at people's names. <laughs> I'm yeah. a terrible person. Pretty much. But now, Dustin <laughs> can involve you and me and him and presumably Aaron in some sort of quantum entanglement um, yes. accident. And we'll all gain magnificent powers. Well, we're already phylotically entwined, so. Aww. Didn't didn't the Fantastic Four get their powers from phylotic rays? Cosmic rays. <laughs> Cosmic rays actually exist, though. So, yeah, they do. And they would kill you, not. <laughs> <laughs> tread carefully. What? For you tread on my dreams. Oh. oh. <laughs> okay. Actually, I don't really have any desire for the Fantastic Four to be part of the Enderverse. So I suppose I should say thank you. Oh, I thought you were just talking about like wanting to be exposed to cosmic rays. Like I, do I want too. powers. Like no, no, they're they're going to kill you. They will you will die. <laughs> painfully. No, Trevor, don't. 
<laughs> no, I was just, I just meant the dream of having phylotes in more fiction. Oh. But I, that's not really a dream. That's just me continuing to talk past when <laughs> I should have stopped the recording. <laughs> Go then. Press stop.